It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, February the 9th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. We are grateful. We are growing thanks to you. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, GuyBensonShow.com. All of your resources related to the program right there, including access to the free podcast every day on demand at GuyBensonShow.com. Here's the lineup. On today's show, coming up to kick off next hour is U.S. Senator Bill Haggerty, Republican of Tennessee. Looking forward to that conversation. Dr. Mark Siegel, our colleague here, will also join us on science and medicine versus fake science. Has the science changed on masking and masking kids? Uh, We know my thoughts on that. We will get it from a doctor later in the show. We will also welcome to the program Brian Lilly, who is a columnist at the Toronto Sun. What the hell is happening in Canada with these trucks and Justin Trudeau yelling about racism constantly? How's it playing publicly up there? Is public opinion shifting? We will ask him. I think it's a really interesting uh, sort of firestorm in a pretty mild-mannered, obedient country, Canada. So we'll get to that. As we begin, let's bring you a Fox News alert on stats. COVID cases, 76.9 million. That's all in. That's the official number. The official number is very, very low. It's not accurate. But over these last two weeks, the case count has dropped 63%, still falling like a rock. The death toll in the United States climbs, as it has tragically every day for almost two years. People dying in this country, wither of COVID, now 907,500. The Dow right now is up more than 200 points. We're about 52 minutes or so away from the close up on Wall Street. But for now, it's up 237 points, the Dow is, trading at 35,699. I want to begin today where we began yesterday with some new developments, though, on this whole front on COVID mitigation restrictions and a lot of them being dropped. A few more states announcing they're going to follow suit. New York, Massachusetts. What blows my mind is that some of the states, Illinois, for example, California, New York, they're saying they're going to get rid of some of these restrictions and mask mandates indoors for adults, but not children. At least not yet. The schools will remain under the yoke of mask mandates, at least for now in these states, and that's union influence once again rearing its head. We've seen the teachers' unions literally change the science, influence the science with the CDC. That was a scandal last year. Internal documents proved that. Imagine letting Randy Weingarten decide what counts as science so that the teachers' unions get their way. I mean, it's just completely outrageous. But that's what happened. 
I saw a poll out from Pew where public confidence in our public health officials has collapsed, especially among Republicans. And unfortunately, that collapse is justified for all sorts of reasons, one of which I just recapitulated. So, I mean, this flurry of states, blue states, making a decision to ease restrictions continues. As I said, some of them are still just dead-enders hanging on as long as they can on the school masking. I'll have more to say on that a little bit later. It's absolutely baffling. It is anti-science. And yet here we are. And my worry is, as I mentioned yesterday, some of these school districts are going to see, even in a state where they've dropped the statewide mandate, they're going to say, oh, well, it's still CDC guidance to wear a mask in school, so we're going to keep that going basically forever. So the fight is not going to end just with the feds, who've kicked the can down the road further today, by the way, not just at the state level, even though there have been some nice victories, for example, just this week in Virginia, but also at the local level. And there's a lot at stake for these children. It's not a hypothetical debate that we're having. There's real impact in people's lives, and we have some audio to make that point that we'll bring to you later on this hour. But I referenced the feds. There was one of these uh, task force press conferences from the White House today, and they're saying that they are sticking with the guidance. I think they're going to start to peel away at some point, and I'm going to get to a reason why I think that's likely true. But for now, they're just plowing ahead with the same old guidance, recommending masks in schools for all these kids, you know, five-year-olds. It's crazy. It's crazy. But look, the fact that some sort of memo went out or there was some sort of group conference call or something where a lot of Democrats said, we are getting hammered. We can't do this anymore politically. Let's say the science is different and uh, start to change. Happened on a dime. Happened all at once, like the course of 48 hours. Like Boom, 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 dominoes starting to fall. There's a New York Times piece talking about the New York area. And one of the details in the piece was that Phil Murphy, the governor of New Jersey, his political team did focus groups, which makes sense. That's what political teams do. They want to figure out what voters are saying. But, quote, Mr. Murphy's advisors were struck by the findings of their focus groups. Across the board, voters shared frustrations over public health measures, a sense of pessimism about the future, and a deep desire to return to some sense of normalcy. Well, if that's what the focus groups say, Governor... I guess it's time to change the science. Look, the fact that they are reducing some of these restrictions, fine. I'm all for it. It should have happened a long time ago. We've argued why, based on data. It's just amazing that they're admitting to the media that part of this, quote, science was driven by focus groups. You know on this show that I've been calling the fake COVID science, sort of the fetishized version of science, That often ignores the actual science on the left in particular. I call it political science. I didn't mean it quite this literally. And yet here we are. Science decided by teachers unions. Science decided by voter focus groups. Just amazing. But look, there's an emergency right now. 
And the emergency is no longer the public health emergency as far as these Democrats are concerned. The emergency is a political emergency. President Biden's job approval has now dipped the average has dipped below 40 percent for the first time in the real clear politics average. He's at 39.8 percent approval and almost 55 percent disapproval. Well, that can't stand. That's a disaster. This is part of the reason driving it. Hey, the the focus groups tell us, and therefore the science has to change. And they'll say that the science has changed, which it hasn't. Science hasn't changed on masking. Science certainly hasn't changed on child masking. What has changed is the politics, and therefore you're seeing some of the Democrats getting out in front of it. I mean, it's not like they're out in front of me. It's so late, so late to this party with so much harm having already been done. But others are still stuck in the mud, including at the White House for now. But here, to me, is a tell. This is a story in Politico this week. Headline, Biden officials trying to recalculate U.S. COVID-19 hospitalizations. Subhead, the administration's goal is to get a more accurate sense of COVID's impact across the country. All right, here's what it says. The Biden administration is working on recalculating the number of COVID-19 hospitalizations in the United States, according to senior officials familiar with the matter. A task force comprised of scientists and experts are now working with hospitals nationwide to improve COVID-19 reporting. The group is asking hospitals to report numbers of patients who go to the facility because they have COVID-19 and separate those from individuals who go in for other reasons and test positive after being admitted. The administration's goal is to get a more accurate sense of COVID-19's impact across the country and whether the virus is causing severe disease. Administration officials have increasingly relied on hospitalization numbers rather than case counts to determine how to respond to the virus as well as the, the efficacy of vaccines. More accurate COVID-19 numbers could also provide a better picture on the strain on hospitals and which resources they might need during surges. Lower hospitalization rates could inform the administration's thinking on public health measures such as masking. Okay, so let's unpack this just a little bit. On the surface, let me say at the outset, good. This should have been done. I mean, I, now I feel like I'm just repeating myself endlessly over and over again on this stuff as these Democrats wake up to the exact same reality in science that we've been talking about till we're blue in the face on this show for like a year. Yes, we should always have been tracking COVID hospitalizations and deaths for that matter. With this in mind, this is the distinction with COVID versus of COVID. That for a long time we were told, uh, you, no, 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 you can't talk about that. You're a COVID denier. You're anti-science. You're downplaying the issue. You're a denialist. All of that stuff. We weren't supposed to have that conversation. And then we pointed out a few weeks ago, they started sort of inching over there. Right? Like Dr. Fauci started, oh, well, let's do uh, these, these child hospitalizations. Let's not get too concerned about them because a lot, a lot of them are incidental. Right? So, okay. 
the incidental hospitalization thing where you show up and you have to get a COVID test because that's the requirement. And, oh, surprise, you have COVID, but that's not why you're there. You're there because you broke your leg. That's very different than someone who shows up because they can't really breathe properly due to COVID. Separating those stats to get a better picture of how severe the hospitalization crisis is for COVID, that is common sense and should have been happening all along. And the Biden people are finally saying, hey, let's do that. When we've been saying, let's do that the whole time. By the way, just as an aside, if you were like Ron DeSantis or Greg Abbott or one of these governors who's been constantly attacked by the White House and the Democrats and the media and that whole you know left-wing crew, if they had been the ones saying, we're going to now start counting hospitalizations totally differently, even if it made absolute sense, which this does, this move from Biden makes sense. It is scandalously delayed. It is obviously triggered by politics, given the timing. But if it had been a Republican governor doing precisely this thing, oh, my gosh, the meltdown on manipulating data, which is what you know Andrew Cuomo actually did in New York for real, People would have been lighting themselves on fire on CNN about what Ron DeSantis was doing. It's all politics. They have a political emergency for President Biden. They really want an off-ramp. They've created their own problem where they can't really do off-ramps. So at long last, here we are in getting to be mid-February of 2022, they're finally deciding maybe we should track hospitalizations and only count the ones that are actually for COVID. And then they'll say, oh, look, the hospitalization rate, the true hospitalization rate is much lower. And the problem isn't nearly as bad. Look at this improvement. We've done this, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you and you're welcome. Victory lap. We have done this together thanks to our policies. And now the science has changed at the federal level. It's not just states anymore. And they can start shedding some of these restrictions and these recommendations. This is going to be part of their justification for doing that when it comes. That's my prediction. That's my analysis of what's happening here. And don't mistake that for opposition. I'm glad this is actually happening. It's a long time coming. This makes sense. It will help point us towards sensible, evidence-based public policy. What is extremely galling is that this exact thing could and should have been done certainly last year at some point in 2021, and only now where the politics are slipping away from them and they need to construct excuses to now give the people what they want. Hey, focus groups tell them. At long last, they're doing this. And maybe it's a cynical take that it's a politically motivated decision, but I think that cynicism is absolutely warranted. Okay, what we're going to do is take a quick time out here when we come back there was a statement made today at the podium by Jen Psaki on masking because for now they're they can't shift it yet they don't have enough of an excuse yet to change the federal guidance which I think is actually going to be pretty harmful for a number of reasons they're trying to get there they're trying to manufacture their reasons at the federal level but she said something that I would like to respond to so we will get to circle back when we come back it's the Guy Benson show The Guy Benson Show. More next. 
I'm Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. So at the White House today, Jen Psaki was asked about this. Now you've got, you know, Democratic governors going their own way, not sticking to the CDC guidance anymore. CDC is, at least for now, planting their feet on their crazy recommendations on masking and this sort of stuff. And you've got Democrats saying, never mind, we're not for that anymore. What's going on with that, Jen? So here's her response in Cut 30. We understand where the emotions of the country are, right? People are uh, tired of masks. I would say not even if you look at the polling, though. There is also a huge chunk of people who still want masks, right? So it's not even that specific. It's just that, as you noted, there are some states that are moving towards rolling back or giving more choice to local communities about how uh, they will implement uh, these uh, requirements. Uh, But again, uh, from the federal government, uh, what our responsibility to do is to abide by what the president committed to on the campaign, which is to listen to scientists, listen to data. Except uh, he's not listening to the data. He's listening to a handful of scientists who are ignoring the data. Now, what jumped out at me from that soundbite there from Saki today was on the masking. She hastened to quickly add people are tired of it, but but. There's a huge chunk of people, based on the polling, huge chunk of people who still want masking. And I'm sitting here like, Lord, give me strength. If people want to keep wearing masks, they can keep wearing masks. We are not talking about banning masks. We are talking about giving people the choice to stop wearing masks if they do a risk assessment for themselves and decide it's not worth it anymore. Just because polls show there's a lot of people out there still who keep on wearing masks, uh, to wear masks, that is not an argument to mandate masks for everyone, let alone children, which makes no sense. I don't care about the huge chunk of people. Do it. Do it if that's what you want to do. And then also her tone, well, some states are now rolling back some things and giving more choice to people. They are ignoring CDC guidance. That was not the tone, Jen, that you guys adopted when Republican states were doing exactly this just a long time ago when it made sense to do it back then, too. I detect a slight difference. It's The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. Thanks for listening. So last night I was on Special Report with Brett Baer. I was teasing that on the show. Maybe some of you tuned in. Appreciate it if you did. So I'm on the panel, and we had talked about crime and the White House position on crime and the Democratic position on crime. And then we shifted to the topic of masks, mask mandates, COVID restrictions, etc., And Brett was making the point that some of these Democratic governors now are coming out and easing the restrictions. And what's the White House going to do? It's sort of a broad question. And he came to me first on the topic. And this is what I said. Cut 25. 
The White House is once again leading from behind on this issue. They're going to come around to the political necessity of their party soon enough, but they're clinging on to these insane CDC standards that are anti-science, frankly, on this issue and certainly harmful to children. Big win, though, today in Virginia, where Glenn Youngkin's position actually came up for a vote for parental choice on masking in the state Senate. There was a huge bipartisan uh, vote in favor of that, 29 to 9, in an evenly, nearly evenly divided chamber. That's not just a win for Yunkin politically, who seems to have perhaps read the room better than others. It's also a win for children, and I think we might see similar bills introduced, we ought to, in other states. Okay, so that's my answer. And then Brett moves on to Jeff Mason, who's a journalist at Reuters. And he seems like a sharp guy, nothing against him. He decides that he needs to push back against what I just said. And I think he misunderstood my point. I really do not like to interrupt on television, especially on special report. That's not really the venue for that with, you know, crosstalk and people sparring back and forth. Usually you have your opportunity. You say your piece. It goes to the next person. It's all very civilized. But from time to time, I think if someone is mischaracterizing your point, intentionally or unintentionally, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I think maybe Jeff misunderstood my point. You can hear me in the background chiming in, and he gets a little peeved about it at one point because I wanted to make clear that what he was knocking down was not actually my argument. Cut 26. Well, I think, number one, I'd just like to push back a little bit against what Guy said, which is that it's anti-science to wear masks. That's just not true. The science is not uh, it's not anti-science to wear masks. And that's something that the, the Biden administration continues to push because the science shows that wearing masks does prevent the spread of covid. I do think broadly not in that the, the Biden I'm going to just finish uh, the Biden administration would love to move on from this pandemic, just as all of us would love to move on from this pandemic. But there, we're approaching nearly a million deaths in this country. And so as much as the White House would like to say, yes, it's time to live normal lives, they're not going to say that when this many people continue to die. Okay. And indeed, that's what they said today in this press conference. They're sticking with their recommendations, even involving schools, even though there's no science behind that, at least for the time being, which puts some of these Democratic governors in a very weird position. In any case, you could hear what he was doing there, which was saying that there is science behind masking, whereas I had called it anti-science, but I was specifically commenting on school masking, forced masking of kids in schools. And as you guys know, as I talk about all the time, there absolutely is not strong, solid, scientifically backed data that supports that position. There just isn't. And there is evidence that it's harmful to a lot of kids. My point was about kids in schools not masking broadly, although, as an aside, I didn't make this point last night, but parenthetically, I think you can question very seriously the efficacy of mask mandates these days. And look no further than what we've been talking about recently, which is the case counts per capita, right, the trajectories, the arcs of cases in these curves, in states that have mask mandates and states that do not. And there's basically no difference at all, and in some very high-profile cases, the states without mask mandates fared better than the states that did have mask mandates during Omicron. So I believe that if you wear a fitted medical-grade mask and you wear it properly, 
and you feel like you need to do that for whatever reason, or that's your choice that you're making for your own health because of your vulnerabilities or what have you, there is science suggesting that that will help protect you, which is why it should be your choice. I think widespread masking, especially with a lot of the cloth masks and that sort of thing that prominent doctors are now saying achieve nothing, they are face decorations and nothing more, I think actually there's a pretty strong case against that sort of mask mandate at this stage across the board. But the case that I was making on special report was not that. It was about kids in schools and that data. And I really do appreciate, because you heard me interject, saying not in schools, just to make that point clear. And Jeff said, well, I'm going to finish. Okay, then he did finish. And I'm very grateful to Brett Bayer, the anchor, who then allowed me to come back and reaffirm that point, just so there was no lack of clarity for anyone. Cut 27. Yeah, I'll give you a second here, Guy, but I think what he's Guy was pointing to was specific studies about schools and kids and threats to kids, and then other studies uh, in recent months, uh, and I'm not putting words in your mouth, Guy, but the, the deleterious effects of socializing and education on kids uh, from masks. Fair? That's, that's precisely right. Yeah, my point is not about masking broadly. My point is about the evidence of masking children in schools preventing the transmission among students. There is no strong scientific evidence to support that, and that has been the case for more than a year. Okay, so thank you, Brett, for allowing me to make that point. There's maybe a chance that Jeff was not aware of that information and that data. It could just be that he was conflating my points because, look, it's hard. We're all in different rooms. We're not face-to-face. We're using different setups. Maybe he just misinterpreted. That's fine. I was able to complete my point and make that Crystal clear in case it wasn't to some folks at the beginning. Now, when I tweeted about this last night, I put the video up. You can follow me, by the way, at Guy P. Benson. That's my Twitter. That's my Instagram, Guy P. Benson. Our account here at the show, Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. But on my personal account last night, producer Christine pulled the video, sent it over to me, and I put it up on my Twitter. I also included a little bit of a a thread, a Twitter thread with data. I don't like to just make assertions, as I said yesterday, and hope that people will believe me. I like to back up what I say with actual information, so I included some of that information, including, in my final tweet of the thread, a bunch of links to rigorous articles about this stuff, not from me, not from some you know, right-wing outlet, but from The Atlantic, from The Wall Street Journal, from New York Magazine, publications that I think would be hard for people who might not be inclined to agree with me to just dismiss as propaganda. And those articles really get into the specifics of this stuff. So I put that out there for anyone who might be interested. And then it occurred to me, two of the pieces that I linked to were about some of the harms associated with masking kids for eight hours a day. It's not just that it doesn't work. It's not just that it is proven totally useless at stopping the transmission of COVID within schools, which is, by the way, quite low, and kids are overwhelmingly fine, even when they do get it in or out of school, more likely to get it in the community than in school. This is all factual information. So I think you could make a strong case against school masking just because it doesn't work, I think that case becomes even stronger when you start to see the types 
of harm being inflicted on a lot of kids who have developmental issues because of this, whose academic progress is stunted, whose social interaction development is stunted because of this. We're learning more and more about the affirmative downsides of this policy, in addition to the dearth of upsides. And it's one thing just to say, read this article in The Atlantic or read this doctor's op-ed in The Wall Street Journal. I think that's important. I think evidence-based, data-driven public policy is important. I also think it's important to remind people that these are not just hypothetical scenarios. These are real people. So to illustrate what I'm talking about, last night I came across on social media a video from one of these school board meetings. This one happened to be in Illinois. And in Illinois, the governor there, Pritzker, has announced that they're going to be lifting the indoor mask mandate. Good news. Long delayed. Except for in schools, which is crazy. It's, it's actually backwards. We're going to lift the restrictions for adults, but keep them imposed on children. It is inside out. It is upside down based on the actual science, and I think a lot of this is just because of the union politics in that state, and the teachers' union politics in that state. It's totally indefensible. So there was a father who went to one of the school board meetings in Illinois. He was talking about a recent ruling of a judge who said that actually the mask mandates cannot remain in place, so it was temporarily gone. This father got up and told the story of his special needs 10-year-old daughter, and he got very emotional. And understandably so, this illustrates what the data also is concluding. And I think people who continue to force kids to wear masks ought to be forced themselves to listen to example after example after example, such as this. This girl, this family, cut 21. I am here for my daughter and beyond anything else, she loves school. The harm you have done to her, she still loves school. She loves her teachers, her therapists, her helpers, above all, her principal at Scott School. Her team goes above and beyond for her. Her LBS has gone to the moon and back for her. She's a happy and outgoing girl. And the countless positive and influential people that have helped her along the way, her team and her principal at Scott School have been such great role models to her. Her dream is to work there someday. She talks nothing else than wanting to be a teacher or wanting to go to school and be in work at school. I can only name a few people in her life that have harmed her and actively participated in holding her back and stopping her progress. And almost every one of them is in this room tonight. So he gets going here. Some of the only people who have actively participated in harming his daughter are in this room tonight. He's talking about the school board with these mask mandates. This dad goes on, cut 22. The past two years have been shameful as the district has been busy lauding themselves while they enact policies that have absolutely been devastating to her growth. We have seen two years of almost no growth, missed goals, goals removed. Her team is doing everything that they can. We've hired specialists. She still loves school. My 10-year-old daughter has kept these feelings to herself about how much she desperately wants to take her mask off. When we told her that it may be possible on Monday, she cried, tears. She jumped up and down. 
She told us that she was so excited that people may finally be able to understand her. You have harmed her so much with this. Everybody talks about everybody's got to be safe. Everybody's got to have everything. And we've left so many children behind. Indeed, they have. In Cut 23, this speech continued. We've tried to protect her. This morning, she got up before us, and she started singing a song to her dolls about how excited she was that kids were finally going to be able to see her smile, that she was going to be able to see other kids' smiles, that kids would be able to understand her, and she would stop being picked on because they could not understand her through her mask because her speech has been delayed even more than her special needs. She is a strong girl, but when I heard her do that, and I heard the things that she said, it broke me. I will never forgive myself for not fighting more. It broke me. I will never forgive myself for not fighting more. This 10-year-old girl with special needs singing to her dolls that she will finally be able to take her mask off and the kids will stop picking on her because they could understand the words that she's saying whose growth has been shut down by adults using no science in the name of safety. It is heartbreaking to listen to this. He finishes up in cut 24. I will never forgive myself for not fighting more. I feel that I have failed her for not fighting more. This district uses hashtags be bold. Next to everything, you continue hiding behind others instead of leading and fighting for the kids that need you the most. You've left them behind while you say that there's no lost learning. The vulnerable, like my daughter, have lost, and she won't get these things back. Her team is doing everything they can, and we respect them and will go do anything for them. But you have failed them. Then you hear the little alarm go off at the very end. There's a big round of applause, and the school board member says, thank you for your comments, and then concludes that portion after he was done by verbally instructing everyone in the room a reminder, wear your mask. That was the very empathetic response from the school board after he poured his heart out about his daughter and the harm that they're doing. And I guess the only thing they can do is look down at their shoes and say, put on your masks, people. How many kids are just like that girl all across the country? Many of them thankfully live in places where they do have freedom, where they can make decisions, but many, many, many do not. And that's a disgrace. Enough. This isn't just some political issue to hit Democrats or something. Kids are being harmed actively. It's why we talk about it so much here. You have government restrictions harming people With no good upside. If this is a hobby horse that I'm beating to death, that's why. On behalf of guys like that and his little daughter that you just heard about. The Guy Benson Show returns after this break. Stay with us. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. I saw this tweet from Bill Malugin, our colleague. 
at Fox News who's been covering the border crisis, I'd say, better than almost anyone, certainly anyone on TV. He's down there day in and day out documenting what's happening. A lot of people just want to turn a blind eye and pretend that nothing's really happening. Maybe it's getting better. It's not. Last time the media writ large was interested in the border crisis, it was because they had an opportunity to attack Border Patrol for whipping Haitian national illegal immigrants, which wasn't true. It was a smear. The administration played into the smear. The president repeated the smear and said there would be consequences and there would be an investigation, and they have been suppressing that investigation because it does not show what they want it to show. I'm just not going to let go of that. Meanwhile, Malugin tweeted this today. It's a photograph. Her face is blurred out, but this is a very small girl. She's five. Five-year-old Guatemalan girl showed up in Del Rio at that sector, completely alone. The sector chief of Border Patrol says the girl told the agents she crossed the Rio Grande by herself. I don't think so. That sector, the Del Rio sector, and counter numbers have already far outpaced 2021 thus far, up over 215% already. And we're in February of 22. That per our colleague Bill Malugin. Well, five-year-old girl all by herself. 215% increase in that sector. On and on it goes under this administration. We're not going to avert our eyes, even as many others insist on doing exactly that. Next hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Stay with us. You don't want to miss it. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show it's a brand new hour here on the guy benson show thank you so much for tuning in our middle hour of three between three and six p.m eastern every single weekday if you miss a minute that's fine we've got a podcast free of charge on demand every day GuyBensonShow.com. That's your one-stop shop for everything. With us now is U.S. Senator Bill Haggerty, Republican from Tennessee, elected in 2020. Before that, he served as U.S. Ambassador to Japan under President Trump. And, Senator, good to have you back here. It's great to be back, Guy. Good to be with you today. I'd like to start talking about the Olympics here. Obviously, you were ambassador, as I just mentioned, to Japan. Tokyo hosted the Summer Games that were scheduled for 2020. They got delayed due to COVID to last year. These Winter Games are in China. And I just wonder what you make of the decision by the IOC to award the Chinese Communist Party these games, particularly in light of their egregious misconduct and abuses over the last few years, And that decision not just to give them the games in the first place, but to allow these games to move forward. Your thoughts? Yeah, Guy, I I, uh, really feel strongly that the IOC made a mistake in allowing these games to go forward. The decisions are made well in advance. But we saw how Tokyo was able to successfully press the pause button on the 2020 Olympics. It took an extra year. They they put on a successful Olympics, although under pretty pretty strange circumstances. We could have easily paused these Olympics as well and moved the Olympics to a venue that doesn't uh, provide a propaganda platform for the world's greatest uh, uh, you know, the, the world's greatest oppressor of minorities. You think about what they've done 
with the Uyghur population there, Tibet, what they did with, with Hong Kong. You've seen them violate you know, international treaty and basically overtake that democracy with their national security law and the many actions that they've taken there to crush Hong Kong. And then, you know, t- t- the situation with Taiwan, which gets increasingly more difficult uh, by, by, the, by the day, by the week. Uh, all of this behavior is now being masked, and they're, they're, they're basically going to have an opportunity to use what should be a symbol for peace uh, to, to basically propagandize the Olympics and make Beijing look like something that indeed it's not. Well, a lot of Americans are just tuning out. They're not interested in lending their participation in any way to these games because of some of the things that you just laid out. And, Senator, I want to ask you about some of the corporate sponsors. And I understand if you're a corporation, you put out a lot of money, you want to associate your brand with the Olympics and Team USA, that's all fine. Where I start to really struggle is some of these companies refusing to comment at all or even acknowledge, for instance, the genocide that the Chinese government is actively undertaking against minorities. And some of these same companies are quick to put out statements and preen and posture here at home on politics, right? They talk about social justice and racial justice. Well, here we have, what, one to two million racial minorities in literal concentration camps in China right now. Not a word about that from the corporate sponsors because they're worried about losing access to the Chinese market. They say, oh, you know, democracy is under attack in places like Georgia for passing completely reasonable laws. They pile on leftist lies because that's what they feel like they need to do to placate the mob here at home. An actual crushing of democracy is happening in Hong Kong at the hands of the CCP. No comment there from these companies. I mean, I think that there is maybe a good reason for the American people to feel some contempt toward companies that talk out of both sides of their mouths. Guy, you said it perfectly. I mean, I, I think you summed it up so well. There, there's a massive economic stake for these companies in China. They don't get hit by a Twitter mob over there because of the censorship that takes place. You know, the corporate HR department doesn't seem to be very concerned when it's happening in China. And the, you know, the, the marketing team doesn't seem to get bent out of shape because they're not getting hit in, in Twitter land. So they just continue to pursue, you know, rank economic uh, short term, I should say, short term economic interest. Because in the long term, China is a predator. The Chinese Communist Party are predators. They've been predators from an economic standpoint for years, stealing intellectual property. You know, they subsidize their champion industries and compete unfairly against us. Uh, you know, they're, they're proving themselves to be military predators as well. Just look what's happening to Taiwan's airspace mm-hmm. right now. And then what are they doing to their own people? Just as you said, genocide happening right there in their own country. And it's just regrettable that these companies certainly find the, uh, the, the, the they're compelled to speak out here in America, as you say, piling on the falsehoods at times, yet they can't speak the truth when it comes to tragedies like this. that are. I also time. want to amend my comparison. I was saying that they talk out of both sides of their mouths. I think maybe more apt in this case is they talk out of one side of their mouth here at home and keep the other side zipped about China. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's just a one small change that I would make before we move on to other subjects. Senator, again, going back to your experience in Japan, in the face of China and the rise of China and the increasing bellicosity of China in the region. What did the Japanese think about that? Is that something that they're worried about on a regular basis or sort of taking a wait and see approach? Guy, guy, they're significantly worried about it. And given their proximity, they have every reason to be. 
you know, they're subject to the exact same problems that we do in terms of intellectual property theft and, and trying to compete against subsidized corporations. They have a similar economic stake in China to us as well. Uh, they have significant investment there. And when things are going bad in China, it's, it's nothing for the CCP to gin up hatred and get, the, you know, get a couple of Toyota dealerships burnt. You know, Japan's had a bad history with China. Uh, you think Nanjing, you know, that they're, they're very easy uh, targets there um, for, for the CCP to, to, to get folks uh, riled up when things aren't going well at home. Uh, so Japan is very concerned. If you look at what's happened around the Senkaku Islands, which is in the uh, East China Sea, uh, China continually moves in and harasses them, tries to exert uh, territorial claims um, over these islands that America has already acknowledged are under the administration of Japan. Um, what they are encountering is a much more frequent and a much more proximate uh, you know, series of threats from yeah, they're testing China. They're limits. watching the situation with Taiwan very closely as well. Sure. And probably, I would guess, Ukraine, right? Because there are some parallels yeah. about the resolve in the West and that sort of thing. Senator, let's shift to domestic politics. I had to ask you about this. I mentioned it yesterday. I had forgotten that this happened because there's just, you know, a blizzard of COVID-related news and all these political fights. So things come and go, and sometimes you lose track of stuff. But someone reminded me on Twitter yesterday that at the beginning of the current school year, so August 2021, as kids were getting ready to go back to classrooms, the Biden administration launched a civil rights investigation into a handful of states to investigate whether not requiring masks in schools violated the civil rights of students. One of those states, out of the five, was your state, Tennessee. They were all red states, Republican governor states, and it looked very much like a politicized attack against Republican-led states, as we've seen over and over again from this administration, whether it's Florida, Texas, in this case, Tennessee, and others, a civil rights investigation about that. Now we see in the last couple of days this deluge of blue state governors making the decision, okay, it's time for us to move in that same direction. The science hasn't changed. I wonder if you anticipate the Biden administration opening investigations into Democrat-run states for doing this exact same thing. I certainly don't expect them to do that. They've weaponized the Department of Justice here in ways that we've never seen manifest before, Guy. Uh, it's just a shame, and it's crushing Americans' confidence in law enforcement here. When I say law enforcement, I'm talking about the FBI and the Department of Justice, not their local police departments, of course. But you think about um, what, what they're doing in, in taking these sort of highly political steps, obviously political steps, uh, is they're destroying the American public's confidence in what should be you know, our top law enforcement officials at the Department of Justice. Meanwhile, you have introduced on another, I'd say, issue related to public trust, a bill called the SNOOP Act, S-N-O-O-P, the SNOOP Act. What is the purpose of that legislation? This guy is to keep the IRS from obtaining uh, financial information from these third-party platforms like Venmo, um, like PayPal, any company, any business, anybody that happens to accumulate transactions that exceed $600 in a year is now going to have to be reported to the IRS. More paperwork for our small businesses and entrepreneurs and more visibility of the Biden administration into our lives. 
I don't think uh, for conservatives going all the way back to Lois Lerner in the Obama administration, we haven't trusted mm-hmm. the IRS with our data uh, for, for, for a long time. And if you look at what happened last year under the Biden administration when they took individual taxpayer data and disclosed it, leaked it to ProPublica solely for the purpose of partisan political gains, I think that just crushed the American public's confidence in the IRS's ability to do anything responsibly when it comes to protecting our taxpayer information. So why would we give them, you know, hordes more data, uh, uh, you know, loads more data to, to, to deal with in this situation? It just makes no sense. The American public do not want this. And there's no accountability at the IRS, too. I'll just underscore this guy. I asked Secretary of the Treasury Yellen to dig into what happened uh, with ProPublica to, to find out who was responsible for this at the IRS. I brought her back under questioning and asked her what the results were of her investigation. Of course, nothing. No one's been held accountable. No one's taking responsibility at the IRS. They completely dodged responsibility after leaking confidential taxpayer information, which should have been you know, penalized on a criminal basis, in my point of view. So the American public's confidence is uh, not high in the IRS, and I think the last thing we need to be doing is giving them all of our transaction information. Yeah, and this is an issue that was raised actually on this program yesterday by Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas, the ranking Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee. And here we have a potential remedy introduced by Senator Haggerty of Tennessee, the Snoop Act. We'll see where that goes. Finally, I want to ask you about we've gone from geopolitics to national politics and now internal politics within the Republican Party. I see today President Trump has put out another statement trashing Mitch McConnell. Seems like he is putting out statements attacking Republicans every day. Uh, I don't know if this is penetrating with people, if they care about what he's saying, if it's going to impact 2022 or beyond. I just wonder, do you think it's helpful to have the former president constantly ripping Republicans and is there any movement within your conference to depose Mitch McConnell as the leader? Because last I checked, he seems to have pretty strong support among your colleagues. Well, you know, I, I've had a longstanding friendship with President Trump, and, and President Trump says what's on his mind. That's one of the things that's refreshing about him. I think that's why the American public uh, found him such a, you know, such such an interesting and different candidate when he ran. Uh, he's going to he's going to say his mind, speak his mind, uh, and I, I don't expect that to change at any point in time. Uh, with respect to Mitch McConnell standing here in the conference, uh, I, it's the same as it was yesterday and the day before. Uh, I don't see any change underway or, or any movement underway, just as you said, Guy, uh, to, to 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 change his status or to unseat him. Um, and I think that as a conference, what we need to be doing is focusing on the failures of the Biden administration to make the contrast as clear as we possibly can, because in November of 2022, we have an opportunity to, to, to significantly change the situation here and put the brakes on what has been just a runaway set of catastrophes and to begin proper oversight over an administration that has proven itself to be just, you know, a radical implementer of the most far left policies possible. You think about what happened in 2020. Joe Biden ran the biggest bait and switch operation ever seen in American politics. Oh, I'm a moderate. Uh, I'm the nice guy. And then what we've seen is uh, a series of policies come from the, the White House that have been nothing short of calamitous, whether it's the destruction of our southern border, waging war on the oil and gas industry that's you know unleashed rampant inflation, uh, the, the sort of mandates that are trying to put on companies and government workers regarding COVID, which is like a ping pong ball in terms of what their policy is. Uh, any given day of the week, it seems like it's changing, as you pointed out. And then overseas, as we spoke about, you know, our, our international posture, 
what happened in Afghanistan, I think, was just heartbreaking to Americans, certainly to, to anybody who's a veteran. And that situation in Afghanistan has emboldened Russia to, to step up to Ukraine. It's emboldened China to do more of what it's been doing uh, in terms of its aggressive posture we've already discussed. And I think the situation in Iran, North Korea, all of it's gotten much worse under Biden. Yeah, and that's the case that Republicans need to be making on schools and everything else. I mean, it's one issue after another for the next nine, ten months, and I think it would be easiest and most effective to do that speaking with one voice as opposed to a circular firing squad. They could still win Republicans one way or another. That's how bad the Democrats have been. But I think unity would probably help maybe maximize those gains. That would be the constructive approach, in my view. Our guest has been U.S. Senator Bill Haggerty, Republican Tennessee, and some really interesting color there early in the interview about his time in Japan as U.S. Ambassador under President Trump. Senator, appreciate your time today. We'll talk again soon. Likewise, Guy. Great to be with you again. Thanks. It is the Guy Benson Show, and we will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. President Biden took office, there were 2 million Americans fully vaccinated. One year later, more than 200 million Americans fully vaccinated. That doesn't happen by accident because President Biden and Democrats in the House and the Senate have leaned into the science, to the evidence, to standing up a robust public health infrastructure. And now we are seeing the fruits of that work. I'm Guy Benson. That was Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, who is the chairman of the House Democratic Caucus, so he's a member of House leadership. He has been widely seen as someone who will rise in the ranks of leadership when the octogenarian, septuagenarian current crop finally stand aside. And he is starting to do what we're hearing from other Democrats around the country now, justifying shifts in public policy on COVID restrictions. They're trying to just declare victory and say, we did this. We've achieved this. You're welcome. And now the science is changing because of us. And so you can now go about and have your lives back. This reminds me of New York and the governor of New York trying to claim that the mask mandate that she imposed in December is responsible for the crash in cases in late January and early February, not mentioning the huge spike in cases, one of the biggest in the country, in between after the mask mandate was in place. Right? They just want to insult you and pretend that it's their policies that are bringing about outcomes that they can now munificently use to give us our freedom back and our ability to do things. It just doesn't make any sense. It is illogical. The idea that Joe Biden is responsible for this, like, oh, well, we're going to crush the virus, we're going to end the virus, and now we have, thanks to our policies, look at the vaccinations. I mean, we've had people vaccinated now for month after month after month after month in huge numbers. But all of a sudden, now everything's changing, even though the science isn't. It's just so transparently political. By the way, this same guy... Hakeem Jeffries, who in the recent past is wringing his hands about Donald Trump attacking the judiciary and talking about Supreme Court decisions that he supported as sacrosanct and the final word. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court this week ruled on a redistricting map, and they sided with the Republicans, not the Democrats. Jeffries tweeted this. The Supreme Court majority has zero legitimacy. Ghosts of the Confederacy are alive and well. Ah, yes. Our wonderful, selfless, 
torch-carrying guardians of democracy, norms, and institutions. Striking again. No legitimacy for a branch of government because they don't like an outcome. That sounds about right. Don't let these people lecture you about democracy, norms, or institutions ever. They are always about power, nothing more. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are halfway through the week and halfway through today's show. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast always free on demand. With us now is Fox News medical correspondent, Dr. Mark Siegel, author of COVID, The Politics of Fear and the Power of Science, at Dr. Mark Siegel, D-R-M-A-R-C-S-I-E-G-E-L. On Twitter, Doctor, good to have you back here. Guy, always great to be with you. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Um, I want to talk to you about an assertion made on the air this week by one of the other doctors who is frequently on TV. Liana Wen was on CNN, and she was reacting to some of these now Democratic states, blue states and Democratic officials, finally seeing the light and all at once deciding that it's now time to start lifting these restrictions and mass mandates and, in many cases, uh, stop requiring them, at least at the state level, in schools. And part of her explanation in justifying this was saying, quote, the science has changed. And I just wonder what your reaction is to that, because obviously cases are down from the Omicron peak very substantially, thank goodness. They aren't necessarily at a low ebb over the course of the entire pandemic, and the science of masking, the science of masking children in schools, to my knowledge, hasn't changed. I just wonder, is this the type of thing that people might say where a lot of Americans are going to call BS and say, no, the science hasn't changed, something else has? Yeah, I think the politics has changed. I think, I mean, I don't want to start with politics. I love the whole question you just asked. And I'll go back to the science in a minute. But maybe some Democrat governors got the memo that said, hey, your people are not going to vote for you for re-election unless you pull some of this back. And and uh, Ashish Jab at Brown said to me on the radio something yesterday that I love. He said the restrictions, you know, if you keep with restrictions across the board everywhere, no one listens to any of them. They're, they're not, if they're not judiciously applied, this is to your point about the science. If they're not judiciously applied, but they're just a rope around an area that stays in place, people wonder, you know, why are you doing that? And they quickly see through the science and realize it's about politics. Now, by the way, I'll add what I always add, which is this isn't even about masking. We're not talking about masking, are we? We're talking about mandates. They're different. Because you if you're in a school and you have a big assembly and a lot of people are crowding together for, for 45 minutes to hear a speaker... And you you know you see it's a big crowd. You might decide to say to everyone wear a mask in that assembly. That's different than having a three year old wear a mask for eight hours because the the state government tells you to. So none of this is the science. On the issue of masking itself, because I had a bit of a disagreement earlier this week on special report with one of the other panelists, and we were talking about the science and masking and students and all of that. And I made my points, and we addressed it again earlier in the show. But there's a component to this that you just sort of touched on, which is individual choice. Right? I'm not going to sit here and say no one should be allowed to wear masks. Right? I think if you feel like you are 
more comfortable in a mask or you feel like you are uh, immunocompromised and therefore you're going to listen to doctors and say, okay, I'm going to get one of those high-quality medical-grade masks. I'm going to make sure it's fitted. I'm going to wear it properly. That's going to really help me and help protect me. I sit back. I say, great. You do that. You make decisions for yourself. I just don't want people making those decisions for me anymore. I haven't wanted that for quite a while. I really don't want people forcing that decision on children in schools eight hours a day where there's no science to support it. And it seems to me that some of the people now making the case for mask choice who are saying, no, some of these masks really can be helpful, and if people are vulnerable, then they can do this, that, and the other to protect themselves. They are protected. They are protecting their health. That's an argument for mask optional choice that probably has been valid for quite a long time. The science hasn't changed on that. It's a self-protection decision, and it should have been treated like that, in my view, for a long time. Yeah, I think that that's well said. And I've always been, I've never been, as you know, and why, one of the reasons we're talking about it is I've never been in favor of mandates, period, throughout right. the pandemic. Right. And certainly not when it comes to masks. I've always called masks an icing on the cake in that they may have some value. When we turned to Omicron, I was kind of thinking they probably had no value. But actually, CDC did put out data, and this was probably more Delta, showing that the higher grade masks do have some value, but they have to be worn properly. And, you know, and we're, we, we've been talking, you and I, Guy, I think the left is finally catching up with this. But we've been talking about the socialization costs, the issue of kids with asthma, the issue of of facial recognition, the issue of learning languages, the issues of developmental delay. You can't hide all that behind a mask and and filthy masks and risks of infection. All of that has to be factored into a public health equation. So what's the value and what's the cost? And then who's mandating it? And, And by the way, and this is the part I love, they're mandating it, but they ain't wearing them, are they? Right. There's a lot of hypocrisy there. And what's, I think, just galling to me is you're exactly right. You and I and Dr. Sapphire, the, like the whole team that's been on, and you guys have been so generous with your time day after day to come on this show during this pandemic and talk from a medical perspective, because I'm just a, you know just a guy on the radio here, and it's good to get experts on. We've been wrestling with these questions and talking about this data for more than a year, for sure, on some of this stuff. And then it's like, A bunch of people woke up on Monday morning and decided, oh, let's all, quote, discover this science as if it's brand new and go out there and tell people, oh, the science has changed and now we're going to do things differently. I think people who've been paying attention know that that's not true. And I think maybe people who haven't paid that much attention sense that it's not true. And here's one example of it that I want to get your response to. The governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy was one of the first uh, Democratic governors to come out and make this announcement this week. He was challenged on CNN. Do you have any evidence that masking kids in schools has been a successful policy compared to places where they don't require masks in schools? And he did not have an answer. He just asserted, yes, it works. It's obvious that it works. No data, no explanation. But there's a New York Times story giving some of the back story about some of these decisions. And we've learned from that story that Governor Murphy had focus groups. His political team went out and did focus groups with voters, and they discovered that voters didn't believe that this stuff was necessary or was working. They were sick of it. They were angry about it. And then, lo and behold, a decision is made, and they come out and they trot it out as if there's new science. But it sounds like this was just focus grouped. Doctor, is that an appropriate way to make scientific, medical-based, evidence-based decisions to focus group voters 
and realize that you might be in political trouble and then make a decision and a change and call it science. Doesn't sound like a stick of science involved with that. By the way, one quick, a couple quick points here. One, you mentioned Dr. Sefar. She has young children, as you know. And yep. so she, she learns not just as a great physician, but in terms of her own family. You know, my children are teens and young adults, but, but she sees what it's like for, you know, a five, six-year-old to be going to school every day with this. And, and the other thing is, um, I think I want to emphasize a point I made earlier, which is if you're the party of mandate, then none of your mandates are going to resonate. You know, the party of mandate, and then they tried to portray the Republican Party as the party of irresponsibility. But then we entered a phase where the freaking virus spread no matter what you did. So I think think that that shed a spotlight to the problem, and that's what lost them votes. And now they're trying to pivot politically, but it's not medically. So I believe in mitigating strategies, but as you said, they're voluntary, and they have to do also with risk. You know, is your is your... Is, is your kid or your adult, are they obese? And what are, what are their underlying medical conditions? And what are you asking them to do? And what is the, the downside? You know, I have a kid with asthma. Wearing a mask is more of an issue for him. I mean, it, 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 it all depends on specifics and individuals. And we physicians always look at it that way, unless we're running for office, which I'm not. <laughs> Dr. Siegel, one more question, and it's on the medical side. We have seen in recent days a study from Johns Hopkins. There was the one about lockdowns not really having any impact on death rates. There was another one that Dr. McCary was involved in about natural immunity and the power of natural immunity compared to the vaccines. And I just wonder, in your broad strokes medical opinion, giving advice to clients and to patients, do you believe that someone who has gotten COVID and recovered from COVID, is that someone who maybe should not get a booster shot if they've gotten the first two shots already or, you know, a Johnson & Johnson shot, if they've got the hybrid immunity, is that sufficient? Or would you recommend, even under those circumstances, going and getting a booster? How should people navigate that? This is an excellent question. And, and, and Marty's study brought up to mind the whole idea that there's a lot more COVID out there than we thought, or that, that has anyone's documented, and that those antibodies are relevant. And I absolutely believe that anyone recovering from COVID is somebody that has an immunity, especially if it's Omicron, because like someone that had, had COVID in January had Omicron. And so, they, you know, I talked to Pete Hegseth on the air the other day. Look, you could travel to Israel this way. Why can't you travel into the United States? Well, I think those antibodies should count. And Marty's study, excellent study was documenting that from Hopkins. But what we still need, and, and, and to directly answer your question, I think my shorthand on this is to count natural immunity as the equivalent of at least one shot. So if you had two shots and a recent case of COVID, that's your booster. And, you know, I don't booster anybody that just had COVID. You know, I, I, I want the more immunity, the better. And what we're missing still, Guy, is what's called a correlative immunity. I want to know the tighter. It's a disgrace that we don't have that number. Above what number of spike antibody protein? Above what number of, of antibodies I can say you're immune, because it varies from person to person. But yes, natural immunity counts. It should count. And it doesn't count here, even though it counts in Israel and Europe, which is a mistake. And I'm also just blown away by that last point that we still don't really have a good handle on what counts as immunity in, in some of these antibodies. How deep into this do we have to go until we have basic answers like that? 
Well, we should have had that already. It's easy enough to, 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 to map those antibodies. You know, again, Hopkins and Marty's eloquent, eloquent study. Map those antibodies and then follow a group that has those antibodies and a group that has no antibodies and, you know, a group that was vaccinated. That study, those studies should have been done by CDC a year ago because we need we have it for hepatitis. We have it for measles. We have, we've got it for every other virus, but we don't know yeah. the exact number here. Well, I will it, say, though, if the number kind of makes low, you wonder, what have they been doing? Like, what, what are they doing over? there at CDC all this time. And, you know, we're, we're spending trillions of dollars on COVID-related bills. At least that's what they tell us they're related to. And elementary questions still remain hazy and unanswered at a national level, which uh, your word was a disgrace. It's very, very frustrating, I think, to a lot of people who then get jerked around and told, you have to do this, you have to do that, don't question that, we don't have an answer to this, just do as you're told, and... Hence, we have, I think, the climate of distrust that is only deepening with all these people pretending to discover new science all together on a Monday, <laughs> like a big coincidence coinciding with terrible polling numbers. Uh, I think it sort of speaks for itself. Fox News medical correspondent Dr. Mark Siegel. His book is COVID, The Politics of Fear and the Power of Science at Dr. Mark Siegel on Twitter. Doctor, always appreciate it. Thank you. And that was a great ending, Guy. That for sure won the panel on Special Report the other night. So thank you very much. <laughs> Appreciate it. That's Dr. Siegel on The Guy Benson Show. And we will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's The Guy Benson Show. We're back. And we are following this uh, Stacey Abrams saga. Because I think it's highly instructive and also, on some level, highly entertaining. Because what a mess she has created for herself and, to some extent, for her political party. Because what the Democrats are doing, as we were just talking about with Dr. Siegel, they are splintering with a bunch of them saying, okay, with all the hypocrisy and the photo ops with Gavin Newsom and Stacey Abrams, people have had enough. Our polling reflects it. Let's just change our position." And go from safety and so-called science to freedom and so-called new science. Now, there are other people within their coalition who are still very neurotic and very paranoid about this stuff, and they're mad about it. So it's a bit of an awkward, painful process for the Democrats. But I really, truly do believe that Stacey Abrams in that photo, sitting cross-legged on the classroom floor with all the masked kids all around her, she's not wearing a mask. Every other human being there is masked except for her. I think that was a catalyzing event. Maybe not fully decisive, but I think it might have been one of the straws that broke the camel's back on some of this stuff. It was just so egregious and so in-your-face, so to speak. So what she did initially was she proudly posted the photo. Look at what I've done. Step two, and she's just sort of shuffling from step to step. So proud photo, number one. And there was a whole bunch of additional photos that came out yesterday. Right? She was saying, oh, she was very careful, judicious, as Newsom lied about his lack of mask at that football game. She was, oh, only not wearing it under this circumstance or under that circumstance. And then more photos came out. She just wasn't wearing a mask. Okay? So then the photo comes down. Right? She had put it out there. It's not like someone dug it up and some Republican tracker in Georgia said, oh, look what I found. She put it out there proudly, then deleted it. Then when the Republicans and others rightfully started criticizing her for it 
and she was really getting hammered, her team doubled down and put out this indignant, angry statement saying that it's disgraceful and a lie and this dishonest smear and attack, and it's during Black History Month and playing the race card. Basically, this is a deceitful, lying, racist attack on Stacey Abrams. So that was her next position. I guess her third step was the counterattack and crying racism, playing the victim. Step four was last night on CNN. You know it's bad when Stacey Abrams admits fault on anything. You know it's bad because this is not someone who takes losses well. right? She doesn't admit to losses, including election losses. But it was bad enough that she went on CNN and decided that she had to apologize. So proudly post, delete, double down counterattack with the race card, and now apologize, cut four. I will say this. I went to read to kids for an African-American read-in day. I approached the podium with my mask on. I followed the protocols. I told the kids I'm taking my mask off because I'm reading to kids who are listening remotely as well. And we were socially distanced. The kids were socially distanced from me. I told them that's what I was doing. And in the excitement after I finished, because it was so much fun working with those kids, I took a picture. And that was a mistake. Protocols matter, and protecting our kids is the most important thing, and anything that can be perceived as undermining that is a mistake, and I apologize. So there's the apology, step four. She just got caught up in the moment. She was feeling the spirit, you might even say, and decided to take the photographs, and she forgot all these excuses don't matter. And the irony is what she should be apologizing for is not forgetting to put a mask back on for her photographs. She should be apologizing for continuing to demand that all these children wear masks for absolutely no scientific reason whatsoever. But she's not. She is sticking with the we must mask the kids position. The forcible masking of children is still her position because she is behind the curve on this. So I expect her to move on to step five at some point where she will come around to the new science, quote unquote, And decide that kids don't have to wear the masks anymore. Because that's obviously the right thing to do. It has been for more than a year. But for now, her apology is not for the correct thing. Her apology should be for backing anti-scientific, harmful mask requirements for children. But that's not where she is. We'll have to wait on step five. At some point, it's coming. Hell of a job, Stace. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. What is going on in Canada? With these truckers, Justin Trudeau keeps smearing them. We will get the inside scoop straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you here. 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday. Around the clock for free on our podcast. It's all at GuyBensonShow.com. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is terrific. In fact, I just responded to a direct message on social 
from a listener who has become a big fan of the Finnish long drink. And he was like, hey, it's good stuff. Thanks for telling me about it. You're welcome. If you haven't tried it yet, you should. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. TheLongDrink.com. And speaking of messages from listeners, I have heard from a handful of our listeners up in Canada, north of the border, saying basically, hey, guy, love the show. Listen every day. And we appreciate that. Why haven't you talked about this big controversy up here in Canada with the truckers and the prime minister going after them? And the truth is, I have followed it very, very loosely on social. I've seen tweets about it. I've read one or two articles. I don't know that much about it. But it does seem very much like a big focal point globally on this battle over COVID and restrictions and individual rights. And it is playing out to this day in the streets of our friends up in Canada. And so I decided, you know what, let's actually cover this. Let's talk to someone who knows what's going on, sort of the ins and the outs. And part of it has to do with the political leadership and the way that truckers, who I guess seem to be upset about the vaccine mandates, they were deemed correctly essential workers through the whole pandemic. Now it's been determined by the government they have to get vaccinated or they can't work. There's a huge national protest up there among these truckers. And the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, has been effectively casting them as radical, extremist, racist, dangerous. Here's part of what Trudeau said, for example. Here's one snippet in Cut 29. Assembly and association are cornerstones of democracy, but Nazi symbolism, racist imagery, and desecration of war memorials are not. It is an insult to memory and truth. Hate can never be the answer. Over the past few days, Canadians were shocked and, frankly, disgusted by the behavior displayed by some people protesting in our nation's capital. I want to be very clear. We are not intimidated by those who hurl insults and abuse at small business workers and steal food from the homeless. We won't give in to those who fly racist flags. Okay, so that's how he is portraying this movement. Meanwhile, you have the opposition up in Canada, the conservatives who are saying, who are you to paint with a broad brush and attack a bunch of people who were just peacefully protesting as racist and backwards? Here was Candace Bergen shooting right back the other day at the prime minister in Cut 28. I do get very defensive of Canadians who are outside today, patriotic, peace-loving Canadians who are called misogynists and racist by the Prime Minister. So again, I will ask the Prime Minister, who may I remind this House wore blackface on more times than he can remember, apologize to the peace-loving, patriotic Canadians who are outside right now just asking to be heard. Will he speak to them? Okay, Brian Lilly joins us now. He's a political columnist at the Toronto Sun. And Brian, thanks so much for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me on, Guy. It's a fascinating story to watch that's now hitting border crossings, one of the busiest border crossings between our two great countries. Yes, and that has implications not only for your economy, but for ours as well. So let's just step back. For those who don't know that much about this, including myself, what is the basis of this protest and how is it manifesting over these last, let's say, few days, week plus? 
It started out against a, a vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers that came into effect on January 15th. So, uh, you know, truckers have been able to go across the, the border from both countries to the other country uh, without being vaccinated. On January 15th, Canada brought its own vaccine mandate and said, nope, to get into this country, you've got to be fully vaccinated. And that means two shots. Uh, January 22nd, a week later, the Biden administration brought in its own mandate. Uh, there are questions about whether this has any efficacy, any public health efficacy. But many of the truckers, about 90 percent of which are vaccinated in Canada, said this is ridiculous. We've been fine throughout the whole pandemic. Now you're putting this on us. That was the impetus for the protest. Oh, wait, hang on. So just just to jump in, yeah. some of these truckers who are protesting, many of them, it would sound like, are themselves fully vaccinated. Yeah, because the this mandate was the impetus, but it's kind of grown into a general, we're fed up with COVID. We're fed up with restrictions. We're fed up with mandates. We're fed up with vaccine passports. We're fed up with all of it. It's time to end and go back to normal. And that's kind of what it's branched out into. And so a bunch of truckers said, you know what, we're going to drive across the country. We're going to rally in Ottawa until the prime minister reverses his. Now, just like with you, some mandates and some restrictions come from the federal government, but for us, they mostly come from provincial governments. But Trudeau's been the focal point of this. And he has, as you heard Candace Bergen say there, he just dismisses anyone who disagrees with them as a racist, a bigot, a misogynist. These are all terms he's used to describe these protesters. And I'm sorry, but when I mean, it sounds got... familiar, I mean, this is this is yeah. how the discourse goes. I think it's really demagogic. I think a lot of people are viscerally disgusted by that sort of tactic. And look, here's the thing. And I think it's important to note this, Brian. There are in any huge protest movement, of course, there are going to be people who do and say bad things. Right. So you don't want to defend some of the fringe crazies who step over a line. So if there are people being racist or breaking laws and that sort of thing, then there is a space and a place for condemning that. I think what's so insulting, and a lot of Americans can relate to this, is the focusing on a handful of people to try to tar a much broader group of people. And but you know, guy, that the uh, the bad apple analogy only works one way, right? And, and for the people who practice Saul Alinsky politics, it works when their side has a bad apple at a protest, but not when the other side has a bad apple at of a protest. Course. Of course, and Justin Trudeau is a disciple of Saul Alinsky politics. So he's out there smearing all these people on a regular basis. Is is like the the mainstream media up there as they would be down here, certainly helping him in that effort? Are they kind of going along with the program? Because to me, I feel like an uprising of workers against the government to protest, you know, grievances and, and unfair treatment. That's usually the type of thing that the left and the media sort of is down for. They're excited. Solidarity, <laughs> all of that. This one, it seems like, no, no, crush the workers, crush those workers, government. It's interesting. Workers of the World Unite has gone, uh, you know, that's fallen by the wayside. Uh -huh. Now it is crush the workers. Um, look, it's uh, it's a divisive topic, and that's why the prime minister is leaning into it as a wedge issue. But he had one of his own party members, which you guys have happen all the time in your country. People will disagree with their party leadership, and it's it doesn't even make news or it makes a you know a little blip. 
we don't have that, especially in the Liberal Party. That does not happen. You're kicked out of the party if you disagree with the prime minister. But one of his own guys came out yesterday saying, stop playing wedge politics with this. Like, listen to other people. Don't just dismiss them. Don't be uh, demagogic about this. But, you know, unfortunately, that is how Trudeau tends to act. He couldn't turn around and say that his own MP, Joel Lightbound, is is a racist and a misogynist because he sits in his party, he sits in his caucus. Uh, <laughs> but he, he was... Definitely thrown aback yesterday in in like uh, 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 well we all know that this is awful we know it sucks but we got to get through it and and mandates are how we get through it he actually said that yesterday we need mandates now the whole world is moving away from from mandates and restrictions Trudeau wants to bring in more not less you know we've got four provinces out of our ten yesterday announced dropping restrictions. You've got New York State moving away from their mask mandate, California moving away from it, Ireland, Britain, Denmark, Sweden, um, Norway, all of these countries moving away from more restrictions. Justin Trudeau wants to double down and have more. And if you're, you know, don't agree with him on that, that's because you're a racist, you know, homophobic misogynist. (laughs) How does he respond, by the way, to sort of the jab that we heard from Candace Bergen uh, the opposition team saying you're going to call these people racist, just peace-loving people who are protesting and concerned with government policies. You're going to call them all racist, and you're the guy who's worn blackface more times than you can count. I mean, does he just totally ignore that point? Because it seems like the, they go to that well a lot because he goes to the racism charge well a lot. Well, and as far as misogyny goes, um, he was credibly uh, accused of groping a female reporter years ago and, you know, denied that up up until it was thrown in his face and then said, well, I'm sorry. Uh, Justin Trudeau gets a pass from the media. The public, not as much. The public has dropped down. He's dropped down considerably in terms of voter support over the last couple of years as these things have come out, but still gets just enough in our multi-party system to stay in power, even if it's by a thread. So, yeah, he just he, he tends to walk by those uh, those cat calls now and, uh, and and tries to lay blame for what's happening. <laughs> he's just he's so accustomed. Else. He's so accustomed to having his multiple blackface incidents thrown in his face that it doesn't even phase him anymore, uh, which is interesting. Last question, Brian. He, in the clip that we played during the segment, Trudeau was not only, again, using that broad brush to essentially disqualify and delegitimize any of the criticisms as all being, you know, evil and backwards and all that stuff. He was also at least taking up the mantle of the majority of Canadians, saying we won't be bullied by these people, sort of like it's most Canadians against these wacky, weird, disturbing fringe characters. What is actual public opinion looking like these days in Canada on this suite of issues? Well, it's funny. The protest movement has adopted his language and, and they say we are the fringe minority. Um, about 32 to 33 percent, depending on the public opinion poll you look at, say that people agree with or find common cause with the protesters. It gets to just shy of 50 percent, 44 to 46 percent uh, when asked, um, well, do they have a point? And, and do you agree with any other points? Yeah, people want COVID restrictions to go. And when you just ask a straight up, do we need to drop COVID restrictions? 
and get back to living life, it's about 55%, which is higher than I have seen throughout the pandemic. So public opinion is moving in the direction of of the the movement and not everybody's on board with them and there are some wacky characters and you know sure claims of we'll take over the government and things like that um but the the general sentiment of the public is yeah it's time to move on from this it's time to end the mandates which is the main message of the truckers and trudeau is on the opposite side of that saying no you racist yeah, a surprise, surprise, and a fascinating doings up in the great white north. And I have to imagine that, Brian, when your fellow countrymen are watching on TV arenas filled with hockey fans across this country cheering on their teams and oh. there are empty arenas up there, you can't go watch whoever it might be, although I guess maybe Canadians fans are, are happy to stay home these days. They're awful. But they've got to, that's like a national religion up there saying the U.S. is doing this. We have no one in our arenas. That's got to drive people crazy. I'm 10 minutes from Scotiabank Arena where the, the, the Leafs play. I've missed two games in the last couple of weeks that I had tickets to, and they're a good team right now. So, yeah, this is a constant source of complaint and – you know, I think we're allowed 500 fans in now. That's oh, it how, in, how in Toronto. 500. That yeah. you know, it, the it, feel, it feels is, like April of 2020, and we're not yeah. in April of 2020. We're we got, in February of 2022 with vaccines and treatments, and the list goes on. You know, it's it's maddening, and it is very interesting to see all of this playing out north of our border. Brian Lilly, columnist at the Toronto Sun, our guest. Brian, thanks so much for filling us in today. Thank you, guy. It's the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour, and we'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Guy Benson Show happy hour. Welcome back. Very pleased to have you here. I want to play you a soundbite from Joe Rogan, who is addressing, of course, this huge firestorm around him and the effort to cancel him, deplatform him, punish him. And here's what he said in Cut 9, talking about the way he has been targeted. Yeah. You know, in a lot of ways, like, all this is a relief. Because it's like, just because that, that video had always been out there. Right. It's like, this is a political hit job. And yes. so they're taking all this stuff that I've ever said that's wrong and smushing it all together. Right. But it's good because it makes me address some that I really wish wasn't out there. You should apologize if you regret something. I do think you have to be very careful to not apologize for nonsense. Correct. You see why people like this guy? He's admitting that his use of the N-word, even in the context of quoting other people, not using it as a slur, it's always a slur, if you're a white person in particular, and he's saying, I wish that wasn't out there. He did apologize for it. He's saying, only apologize if you actually regret something. Don't apologize if it's nonsense. So he's saying... The N-word stuff, I understand the debate over context, etc. I still think, looking back, it was wrong. I apologize. That's just sort of a, a normal, self-reflective thing of him to do. He's being self-aware. He's being candid. He's being contrite. He's also recognizing that there's other stuff not worthy of apologizing over. He's also, within this context, saying it's a political hit job, which it is, right? So it can be both things. You can say he is right to apologize for something that he regrets, 
and also the thing that is being inorganically, quote-unquote, resurfaced, that is being done as part of a political campaign to take him out. And he's able to lay that out and sort of talk openly about it in a way where he's not talking around it or deflecting. He's just going straight to the issue that resonates with people. It's authentic. He's being real. And that's part of the problem that his haters have. They can't take that away from him, and he ingratiates himself and endears himself further to his massive audience, much bigger than their audiences, by being real and by being truthful. By the way, I saw Trevor Noah of The Daily Show. He's out there lecturing Joe Rogan, and people are now resurfacing old jokes and old tweets from Trevor Noah back in 2015. He said, I hope that my comedy and me as a person, I hope that I'm not judged by a compilation of my worst jokes and inappropriate things that didn't land. And at the time, back in 2015, you know who defended him publicly when he was under fire, Trevor Noah? Joe Rogan did. But now here he is plunging the dagger. Yeah, we see that, Trevor. Classy stuff. So much for loyalty and gratitude, huh? The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour resumes after this break. Stay with us. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour on this Wednesday. Earlier in the program, we welcomed back U.S. Senator Bill Haggerty. Republican from Tennessee. He was previously U.S. Ambassador to Japan during the Trump administration. Here's part of my interview with Tennessee Senator Bill Haggerty. Obviously, you are ambassador, as I just mentioned, to Japan. Tokyo hosted the summer games that were scheduled for 2020. They got delayed due to COVID to last year. These winter games are in China. And I just wonder what you make of the decision by the IOC to award the Chinese Communist Party, these games, particularly in light of their egregious misconduct and abuses over the last few years, and that decision not just to give them the games in the first place, but to allow these games to move forward. Your thoughts? Yeah, Guy, I I, uh, really feel strongly that the IOC made a mistake in allowing these games to go forward. The decisions are made well in advance, but we saw how Tokyo was able to successfully press the pause button on the 2020 Olympics, it took an extra year. They they put on a successful Olympics, although under pretty pretty strange circumstances. We could have easily paused these Olympics as well and moved the Olympics to a venue that doesn't uh, provide a propaganda platform for the world's greatest uh, uh, you know, the, the world's greatest oppressor of minorities. You think about what they've done uh, with the Uyghur population there, Tibet, what they did with with Hong Kong. You've seen them violate you know international treaty and basically overtake that democracy with their national security law and the many actions that they've taken there to crush Hong Kong. And then, you know, t- t- the situation with Taiwan, which gets increasingly more difficult uh, by, by, the, by the day, by the week. Uh, all of this behavior is now being masked, and they're, they're, they're basically going to have an opportunity to use what should be a symbol for peace uh, to, to basically propagandize the Olympics and make Beijing look like something that indeed it's not. Well, a lot of Americans are just tuning out. They're not interested in lending their participation in any way 
to these games because of some of the things that you just laid out. And, Senator, I want to ask you about some of the corporate sponsors. And I understand if you're a corporation, you put out a lot of money, you want to associate your brand with the Olympics and Team USA, that's all fine. Where I start to really struggle is some of these companies refusing to comment at all or even acknowledge, for instance, the genocide that the Chinese government is actively undertaking against minorities. And some of these same companies are quick to put out statements and preen and posture here at home on politics, right? They talk about social justice and racial justice. Well, here we have, what, one to two million racial minorities in literal concentration camps in China right now. Not a word about that from the corporate sponsors because they're worried about losing access to the Chinese market. They say, oh, you know, democracy is under attack in places like Georgia for passing completely reasonable laws. They pile on leftist lies because that's what they feel like they need to do to placate the mob here at home. An actual crushing of democracy is happening in Hong Kong at the hands of the CCP. No comment there from these companies. I mean, I think that there is maybe a good reason for the American people to feel some contempt toward companies that talk out of both sides of their mouths. Guy, you said it perfectly. I mean, I I think you summed it up so well. There's a massive economic stake for these companies in China. They don't get hit by a Twitter mob over there because of the censorship that takes place. You know, the corporate HR department doesn't seem to be very concerned when it's happening in China. And the, you know, the the marketing team doesn't seem to get bent out of shape because they're not getting hit in, in Twitter land. So they just continue to pursue, you know, rank economic, uh, short-term, I should say, short-term economic interests. Because in the long term, China is a predator. The Chinese Communist Party are predators. They've been predators from an economic standpoint for years, stealing intellectual property. You know, they subsidize their champion industries and compete unfairly against us. Uh, you know, they're, they're proving themselves to be military predators as well. Just look what's happening to Taiwan's airspace mm-hmm. right now. And then what are they doing to their own people, just as you said? Genocide happening right there in their own country and it's just regrettable that these companies certainly find the, uh, the, the they're compelled to speak out here in america as you say piling on the falsehoods at times yet they can't speak the truth when it comes to tragedies like this that are i also want to amend my comparison i was saying that they talk out of both sides of their mouths i think maybe more apt in this case is they talk out of one side of their mouth here at home and keep the other side zipped about china yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's just a one small change that I would make before we move on to other subjects, Senator. Again, going back to your experience in Japan, in the face of China and the rise of China and the increasing bellicosity of China in the region. What did the Japanese think about that? Is that something that they're worried about on a regular basis or sort of taking a wait and see approach? Guy, guy, they're significantly worried about it. And given their proximity, they have every reason to be. You know, they're subject to the exact same problems that we do in terms of intellectual property theft and, and trying to compete against subsidized corporations. They have a similar economic stake in China to us as well. Uh, they have significant investment there. And when things are going bad in China, it's, it's nothing for the CCP to gin up hatred and get, the, you know, get a couple of Toyota dealerships burnt. You know, Japan's had a bad history with China. Uh, you think Nanjing, you know, that they're, they're very easy uh, targets there um, for, for the CCP to, to, to get folks uh, riled up. That full discussion with U.S. Senator Bill Haggerty, Republican Tennessee, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Also, the podcast, the entirety of the show every day, 
free on demand when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. producer Christine's husband is out of town. Is he going to the Super Bowl? And what is she doing in his absence back home in Jersey? We'll get into that next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in today. I'll be in Atlanta, Georgia tomorrow and Friday. Podcast free of all the shows, no matter where I am, every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. So, Christine, you were telling us that your husband, Bobby, had plane tickets for work out to California, to Southern California specifically, and he was excited. He was flying business class because it's a work trip. And it's L.A. And he's doing some stuff around the Super Bowl. But is he going to the Super Bowl? No, he's not. He doesn't have a ticket to the Super Bowl. And what I was thinking is I know, I mean, Valentine's Day is coming up. So I was thinking of buying him a ticket to the Super Bowl, but one of my girlfriends said she thinks it's kind of expensive. It's not like I could just like go online and I don't know, I, I, I could spend a couple hundred dollars on the ticket, but I thought it'd well, be like a nice surprise for him. Cause he's out there helping with Super Bowl related coverage, but he doesn't have a seat for the game itself. He no. doesn't have a ticket for the game. He'll be out there obviously through Sunday, which is when the game is, you want to surprise him for Valentine's Day with a ticket. I am just curious, do you have any sense of how much a Super Bowl ticket costs? Like, what, what do you think you could maybe get, like, the cheapest seat in the house online, if you had to guess? Like a couple hundred? Like two, maybe three hundred? Three hundred dollars. You know, yeah. Yeah, so. Hey, uh, huge stadium. Dan, uh, you're a sports guy. Uh, any comment on that guest from producer Christine. Have you done, maybe you could pull up uh, StubHub. Is she in the ballpark, so to speak? So I'm looking at StubHub right now. For the game, a nosebleed seat, uh, highest up you can go, is $3,925. So that is the worst seat in the house. And the range, they range up to $16,000. For the game. 16K for the better seats. All right, so yep. just $4,000, Christine, for a nosebleed seat. How much do you love Bobby? Uh, he will not be getting a ticket to the Super Bowl. There is, that is insane. And like, when you say nosebleed, does that mean like the highest, highest you could go? Like the yeah. last seat? It's very, very high up there. Yep, absolutely. Like the top of the upper deck, four grand, and his team isn't even playing. I feel like. You might actually get in trouble if you spent that kind of money on a ticket. He would be so mad he couldn't even enjoy the game. Yeah, he no, he that wouldn't no, it wouldn't be good. We've spent money on tickets for you know Phil Collins. Obviously, we spent a lot of money on Bro, but it wasn't even close to four thousand dollars. That is insane. And I have a question: Are like do people? A lot of people just get like comp tickets or would someone really go online and spend that money to be that high up for the Super Bowl? Oh yeah, people would spend. People would spend that money to go to the Super Bowl. Sure. I mean if you're 
a Bengals fan and you've waited your whole life for this, you probably grit your teeth and spend the money if you've got it, even if it's a little bit painful. I don't think I would spend that kind of money. I was thinking, like, if the team that I cared about the most were in the most important game possible, would I spend that kind of money to get in? And the answer is probably yes, honestly. Uh, If Northwestern were in the national championship game, I know we're getting into fantasy land here, but if that were to happen and it was like, hey, a couple grand to get in the building, that would not be the case. I would feel very confident about that, but I think I would do it. I would not do it for just some random game. And sure, there's plenty of comp tickets, but they're paid for by someone, corporate sponsors, that sort of thing. So I think we can just decide and settle. Bobby will be around the Super Bowl. He will not be at the Super Bowl unless some miracle happens. It will not be because of producer Christine dipping into the uh, the Christmas fund. What do you call that again? Our Christmas club. Christmas club. That's right. So you're going to keep that money in the bank for next year, not for this Super Bowl matchup, which we will be talking about more on Friday's show. In the meantime, Christine, because Bobby's gone – you and your daughter are going to celebrate National Pizza Day without him doing something that you know is highly controversial and for which I will mock you. Today is the day that we get pineapple bacon on a pizza from Domino's because they're having some deals right now because it's National Pizza Day. Now, I know that's not like real pizza and especially from jersey i got my go-to like you know good yeah, why would you sully national pizza day with pineapple because there's probably a coupon out there somewhere i think there are you know domino's and little caesars a whole bunch of them doing some good deals so and not here he will eat the pizza with me um but i don't think he loves it as much as i do so i don't know if actually megan's gonna eat this but we'll have to see. She can well, she has pretty off. good taste, so maybe not. I, they would have to pay me to put pineapple on my pizza, on National Pizza Day in particular. I think it's almost sacrilegious. And I sent you, actually, what was it, last week? I saw a poll. They polled Italians. I know you claim to be <laughs> Italian in heritage. I think we I know am. that you're actually from a different motherland, so to speak. But you claim to be Italian. And they polled Italians about food, do's and don'ts, and best practices versus faux pas. And I want to say something like 80% of Italians or more were a hard no on pineapple and pizza. It was just not fathomable to them. You know what? So what are you saying? Because I like that I'm not Italian? Of course I'm Italian. Um, I just happen to like that pizza. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not saying it's authentic. But people, for some reason, they get so angry about this. And I don't understand why. Uh, you should try it. We should I'm not angry things. about it. I am just befuddled. The way that you're befuddled that other people get angry, I'm befuddled why you would do this, especially as someone claiming Italian heritage. I mean, I feel like I'm perhaps more authentic with no Italian blood because I agree with Italians in rejecting this practice. Right? Like, I, I feel it's like totally- you would go back and I'd say, like, 
Elizabeth Warren. I'd be like, okay, let's see. Let's see the genealogy that makes you Italian. And it would be like, okay, Christine, and then we'd have the family tree, and your family tree would go down one generation, and you would just put in Olive Garden logos. Be like, see? Well, I do have to say I've done that the DNA kit um, to see, you know, my heritage. And I just assumed I was like 70% Italian or something like that. And, ooh, my husband still asked me to this day, the day I got the result, it said like 37%. I was devastated. <laughs> Less devastated. than half. Just over a third. Just over a third. By the way, your daughter, Megan, we were just mentioning her in the context of Pizza Day. Let's move on due to the pineapple stuff. Did she react? Because I know she hates the mask and having to wear it at summer camp, which was crazy, wearing it at schools. It sounds like she will at least have an option not to wear it. Has the school actually confirmed that they're going to take the governor up on the lack of mandate now? Or are they going to keep them in place? That's the thing. There's still flexibility for school districts and schools to say, we don't care that there's no longer a mask mandate. We are sticking with what the CDC confirmed today is still the national guidance. So will they be able to take the masks off in March? And does your daughter have any thoughts on that? So we have not gotten any guidance. We have not gotten an email, a text message, nothing from her school that's saying that we will, you know, unmask the kids on March 7th. But I did tell Megan about it. I said, you know, our governor said that children don't have to wear the mask anymore next month. And without missing a beat, as we were driving to school today, she goes, yeah, I don't buy that. She goes, I'll see it when I, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. That's very wise. You're reading. Yeah, I think that skepticism or cynicism is very well earned. And by the way, I would absolutely put in some emails and calls to the school saying, can you confirm that when the mask mandate goes away in the state, we will be able to make this choice for our daughter? Because they need to be pushed on this stuff. I'm just putting that out there. Just some uh, some parenting advice to you as a non-parent myself. I just think the pressure needs to ramp up, or else they might decide to just stick with the program and go with the flow And I think it's on parents to really push that envelope because the science, everything, is behind optional masking, and some of these decision makers need to be pushed. Quickly tonight, before we run out of time here, a small note about the Guy Benson Show family. You may have noticed, regular listeners, that even recently during these home stretch segments over the last couple weeks, Quiet Wyatt has not been around as often as he usually is. That's because he and his family have been going through something. His grandmother, to whom he has been very close, was not well. So he was up at home. He was working remotely. He was taking time off. And sadly, a few days ago, Wyatt's grandmother passed away. And as I mentioned, they were very close. I know this is really tough on him. They're a tight-knit family. They're a wonderful family. I've had the privilege of meeting Wyatt's parents. And I know this is really hard. It was not unexpected, but that doesn't make it easier. So there's a wake tonight. Producer Christine will be attending on behalf of our team here. I wish I could go. I'm going to be on a plane down to Georgia. But Christine will be there. I'm grateful, Christine, that you're doing that. And we just wanted to extend our well wishes, our thoughts, our prayers, and our condolences to Wyatt and his family in this time of grieving and loss. On that note, thank you for listening. 
from Atlanta, Georgia, tomorrow and Friday, the Guy Benson Show returns. We will talk to you then. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.